This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Evgeny Fadif, a PhD student and job market candidate at Harvard University. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, Creative Construction Knowledge Sharing in Production Networks. Evgeny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jordi. Thank you very much for having me. So, Evgeny, this is like a paper that has some motivating facts, a little bit of theory, some additional evidence that supports that theory. So I want to start in some sense, like chronologically, with you telling us what is this fact about citations between patents that you have documented and that it is novel and surprising in terms of what we knew about citations? Yeah, sure. So much of the literature in economics is based on the idea of knowledge spillovers, and empirically these spillovers are often measured by patent citations. What I document in my paper is that I show that even the most cited patents receive primarily their citations from one firm only, and this concentration has increased over time. For example, uh, one of the most cited patents granted in the United States is assigned to IBM, and IBM received lots of citations, yet almost all of these citations came from one firm only, Amcor Technology. And this is puzzling because patents are public files. That is, uh, firms, to get monopoly rights on their inventions, they have to disclose their inventions to the public so others can create follow-on innovations based on it. So this is a uh, this is a design of the patent system. And that based on this design, we would expect highly cited patents to generate spillovers so or to generate citations across a broader set of firms, not only to one firm. And so in general, what I do in the paper, I take the set of the most cited patents, I take top 5% of the most cited patents, and I show that on average, they received around 50% of citations from one firm only for patents granted before 2000. And this has increased up to 75% for patents granted in 2014. So the most cited patents granted in 2014 received around 75% of citations from one firm only. So a, a couple of things about this fact. The first one is, you have said a couple of times, even the most cited patents, I guess that the emphasis on the most cited patents is because if there was a patent that has been cited only once, then mechanically 100% of the citations have to come from a single firm, right? So this is the reason that you focus on patents that have lots and lots of citations, you know, where we will expect a wider distribution. Uh, the second issue that I wanted to emphasize is that there are several mechanical uh, ways in which you could you know, generate this type of concentration. In fact, you discuss additional reasons for this concentration in the paper and show that the one that is a priori a bit you know, more puzzling is, is the one that seems to be explaining this concentration. What are these, like, if you want, like mechanical or, or uh, reasons that you find by construction and how do you decompose between them? Yeah, sure. So the concentration might be driven, the concentration of citations might be driven by many reasons. Some of these mechanical reasons is that the concentration of citations might actually be driven by the concentration of patenting. That is, imagine that one firm has thousands of patents and other firms have two or three patents, then it is natural that we would see citations coming from one firm only. And so what I do in the paper, I'm trying to distinguish between different sources of the concentration of citations. And in particular, I highlight three sources. First source is a difference 
in the uh, probabilities of a citation. For example, I just told you an example of IBM and Amcor, and Amcor is responsible for, for more than 90% of citations to the IBM's patent. So it might be the case that Amcor is making citations with a higher probability relative to other firms or with high intensity. For example, suppose that almost all patents from Amcor make citations to the IBM, while other firms, none of their patents make citations to the IBM. So this is the first source. The second source is the difference across firms in the number of patents. That is, suppose that Amcor has much, a lot of patents, while other firms have uh, a small number of patents. Then Amcor, again, might be responsible for the concentration of citations. And the third reason, I call it a natural concentration measure, might be driven just by the total number of firms that could potentially cite a patent. Suppose, for example, that we have only two firms in town, then the concentration cannot be lower than 50%. So how I decompose between these uh, different measures, basically I do Monte Carlo simulations where I allocate citations randomly. And by this, I'm trying to construct the counterfactual concentration where, for example, citation probabilities are equalized across firms. And so the concentration is driven only by the differences in the, in the number of patents. Or I construct a counterfactual concentration where both citation probabilities and the number of patents across firms are equalized. And so the concentration is driven only by the total number of firms that could potentially cite a patent. And based on this decomposition, I show that the concentration is primarily driven by differences in citation probabilities. That is, Amcor is responsible for more than 90% of citations to the IBM's patent because it makes citations with higher probability relative to other firms, not because it has more patents. So let me say, this is not a literature that I'm super familiar about. Therefore, I didn't have super strong priors about what this number of concentration that you have told us is between 50 up to 75 percent is. So my, my priors were not very strong. However, if they had told me to guess a number, I agree with you that I will have guessed a number well below 50 percent. Hmm? However, now that I know the number, a natural interpretation that comes to mind is in terms of the existence of uh, technological similarities between the patents of different firms. That would be like an observed heterogeneity is the first thing that empirical economists always go for, you know? So this is the way that I thought about it. Imagine that you have a firm that makes vacuum cleaners and has a patent for a filter. Now, even if we control for the technological class filters, it will be other firms in the same industry of vacuum cleaning that will cite that patent because perhaps the filters of vacuum cleaners have different specifications that filter for other things. You know, filters maybe it's like your technological class or your, your industry uh, classification, but there is this is something even finer than that. Of course, many of these firms in the industry will be customers or suppliers of this initial firm because they will be creating products and filing patents that are complement to the patent uh, about the filter of the initial firm. So there... There is no transmission of information. There is no knowledge spillovers. There is nothing. Just the technological similarities um, or complementarities between these different types of knowledge are explaining everything. This is, however, not the first thing that you go for, or maybe it was the first, but it's not the foundation of the theory model that you have in mind. And in some sense, this will be like a, an alternative explanation throughout. We can go back to it later. But do you agree with me that this will be the most natural way to explain this? Yeah, to some extent. Actually, the, that was my first explanation that I started. When I realized this fact in the data, I saw this. I started this research by 
studying knowledge flows between suppliers and customers. And that's exactly what I found. Like IBM and Amco, uh, Amco is a supplier to IBM. It makes lots of citations to, to the IBM. And so I thought maybe they're creating something relationship specific to IBM or they specialized in some technology. And just for other firms, it's not valuable to make citations to this patent. So it's a, I think it's a great idea and great area for future research. To the best of my possibilities, I try to control for this story. In particular, I, uh, as you said, I try to select very detailed technological classes. For example, let's take again uh, Amcor and IBM. So Amcor is making a lot of citations to the IBM. So what I did, I found all patents from the same very detailed technological class, uh, much more detailed than the usually one used in the literature. So all patents from the same detailed technological class, from the same location of inventors as I'm course inventors, and from the same uh, application year, and I found all patents, and basically there are lots of patents from other firms. For example, Intel has a lot of patents, but it makes no citations to, to the IBM. So it is still possible that technological classes do not capture this relationship specificity or specialization, but at least it points out to us that at least we need to look then at a very detailed, at a very narrow technological class level. And to the best of my possibility, I try to control for that. Another thing I try to do, I also try, so if I'm core and IBM, uh, they're doing something relationship specific, I also try to look at the, maybe there is uh, something in the text of the patent file. So for example, maybe I'm core least IBM, uh, that is, this is a technology for IBM, that's why I make so many citations. And I did not find any evidence of this. And just finally, what I did, I went deep into this literature. I read a lot of study, case studies, a lot of uh, legal literature on patents and patent citations, management literature. And basically what I realized that the literature talks a lot about tacitness of knowledge and about knowledge sharing. And uh, this also seems like a natural explanation for this fact. And that's why I uh, decided to stick with this explanation. But I agree that there might be alternative explanations that's hard to uh, control for. I want to emphasize that this alternative explanation for the initial fact that you are going to have a different theory of a, yeah. this initial fact that, as you said, is based on knowledge sharing and relation between suppliers and customers. And then you are going to derive additional predictions from this uh, initial fact, uh, from, from, this, uh, from this new theoretical framework. Can you tell us what is like the, the theory framework uh, that, that you use uh, to, to try to explain this fact? Yeah, sure. Uh, so just uh, returning back a little bit to this puzzling fact. So one puzzle is that there is a high concentration of citations. But another puzzle is that this concentration is driven by firms that are not competing with each other. Like Amcor and IBM, they have a supply chain relationship. And basically, IBM does not receive a lot of citations from competitors. While the literature on economic growth is usually focused on creative destruction, that is on the industry competition and spillovers among uh, competitors. And there are many papers that use patent citations to discipline these growth models where basically citations are interpreted as spillovers between competitors. But what we see in the data is that a lot of uh, citations, I don't want to call them spillovers, they, I think they reflect something different, happens between firms with a vertical relationship rather than with horizontal relationship. And so the theory is that I propose, I'm trying to explain, I argue that uh, instead of knowledge externalities, citations reflect cooperation between firms and they are related with the shared 
sharing of trade secrets that are complementary to the knowledge disclosed and patents. So in other words, despite the disclosure requirement of the patent system, firms still leave a lot of valuable knowledge private in the form of trade secrets and citations are correlated with the sharing of these trade secrets. And I like to give here an example of how firms combine patenting with secrecy. I think a good example here is COVID vaccine. When Biden administration announced that they would support a wave of intellectual property rights for COVID vaccines, many IP lawyers argued that there is not enough information in the patent files to replicate this technology. You also need access to trade secrets and technical know-how about this technology, and firms will be reluctant to share it for free. So this is the first piece of my theory that is, I argue that instead of spillover, citations reflect intentional knowledge share. And so based on this idea, I develop a theory that tries to explain when we should expect citations or knowledge flows to be concentrated and when we should expect them to be diffused. Let me, let me stop you here for a second. So just to be clear, there are two types of knowledge that are associated with an invention or an innovation, and they are useless without each other, or at least less useful without each other. One of them can be codified and is the patent. The other one cannot be codified is tacit knowledge. And typically they have to go hand in hand because you cannot exploit the tacit knowledge without the uh, codified knowledge and vice versa. Yes, yes. So that's, that's the idea. Yes. That's uh, the so idea. And mm-hmm. Go ahead. Y- yeah, usually uh, uh, a lot of uh, the large literature on intellectual property rights protection is focused on either patents or secrets. That is, you have a monolithic piece of knowledge and you can it's either patent or keep it secret. You cannot do both, so they are substitutes. So what I argue is that actually knowledge is not a monolithic piece of knowledge and that uh, secrecy and patenting, they go hand in hand, as you said, and they are complementary to each other. And so indeed for the same technology, we can protect part of this technology through patents and I call it codified knowledge and part of the knowledge we uh, we protect for secrecy, which is, I call it tacit knowledge. Yeah. So if you have some innovation and you are thinking of sharing it, you will typically only want to share it with your suppliers because they create products that are complementary to you. They're gonna, not going to steal your market uh, share. That That's the reason to focus on these production networks, on the uh, customer-supplier relations. And on basis of that, you build a model. Can you give us like a quick idea about the main elements of the model and, and the predictions that it delivers? Yeah, sure. I like to describe the models with a case study. This is a case study on a Copus interconnect technology for semiconductor chips. And basically, there were several several firms tried to develop this technology, but there were two leaders, IBM and Motorola, and they used different strategy uh, of protecting their secrets. So IBM relied a lot on secrecy. They patented some parts of knowledge, but they kept most essential knowledge secret. They relied a lot on secrecy, but they still shared their secrets with their suppliers. In particular, they shared with the Novelist systems. But to prevent knowledge leakages, they were afraid that Novelist could leak this knowledge to other firms. They used different types of contracts to restrict uh, Novelist's behavior. In particular, they signed exclusive dealing and they signed confidentiality agreement. So Exclusive dealing restricted Novelos's ability to sell input to other firms, and confidentiality agreement restricted its ability to talk about this technology with other firms. So this is one strategy, one firm, IBM and uh, its suppliers. Another firm is Motorola, and it used completely different strategy. It also relied on secrecy. It shared its secrets with suppliers, but it did not sign so many restrictive contracts. And actually, according to many interviews, suppliers to Motorola were an important source of knowledge for the rest of the industry. For example, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which is now a huge company, but at that time in 1990s, it was an entrant in this technology. They relied on, on a lot on knowledge from applied materials which was a supplier to Motorola. So we have 
two different strategies. One firm signed contracts with its suppliers, exclusive dealing and uh, confidentiality agreement. Another firm did not sign these types of contracts. And so what I did in the paper, I took their patents and I looked at the distribution of citations for their patents in these technologies. And what I found is that IBM's patents, their highly citations for them are highly concentrated and they primarily come from suppliers, for example, from Novelus. And for Motorola's patents, they its patents receive citations from a diverse set of firms, from suppliers, from firms that shared suppliers. And so the basic idea of my theory is that there might be a leakage of firms have incentives to share their knowledge with the supplier. The supplier might want to leak this knowledge to other firms, depending on whether this leakage happens or not, knowledge flows are diffused or concentrated. And so the outcome depends on the types of contracts that firms in a vertical relationship sign with each other. And so in the theory, I construct a very stylized model where I try to explain when do firms sign confidentiality agreement and exclusive dealing and when they don't sign any contracts. And basically, uh, the outcome depends on the market structure downstream and upstream. It depends on the degree of competition between, for example, IBM and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. If this competition is very high, IBM signs exclusive dealing with its supplier uh, in order to decrease this competition. And if competition is very low, uh, they might want to allow knowledge leakage but it depends on the bargaining position of the supplier with respect to the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And so uh, basically, there are two main predictions on when knowledge flows are concentrated and not. Uh, it depends on the market structure, on the degree of competition between downstream firms, and it depends on the bargaining power of the supplier in input price negotiations with, uh, with firms that want to uh, get access to private knowledge of the incumbent company. A few things there. And the first one is that, just to be clear, you are thinking of the IBM case and the Motorola case as two separate states of the world. If you want like two counterfactual states of the world that are only different from each other in the ex ultimately exogenous variables or parameters of the model, which are the degree of competition in the product market and the ready bargaining power of the suppliers. That is, you are not in, in this uh, example that you that you mentioned. You could think that IBM and Motorola are also competing against each other, but that's not the way that in this analogy you are thinking of them, right? They are two separate uh, potential states of the world. Yes, that's that's true. I. I simplify my model. Yeah, but I, I need to, I think uh, you're right. I need to emphasize actually in the data, Motorola is also citing IBM and IBM is citing Motorola. Yeah, so that clearly can You are never going to find an exact, you know, example in the real world that fits the, you know, the parameters of the model or the situation in the model perfectly. You know, this is this is pretty good, but just want to emphasize that this is like a difference, uh, a difference in there. Uh, the second thing that I wanted to discuss is in terms of the, confidentiality agreements and exclusive dealing tools that the the main firms IBM and Motorola have to restrict the knowledge that they share with the suppliers to leaking uh, to their own competitors. So confidentiality agreements essentially means I give you a certain knowledge, but you cannot give that knowledge to anybody else. And exclusive dealing means I give you certain knowledge and you could give that knowledge to somebody else, but you don't have any incentives to do that because um, you are not able to charge them for that knowledge. 
the fact that you can only sell to me and not to uh, my competitors means that you don't have any type of a market mechanism through which you can extract the benefit of the information that you are sharing with my competitors. Therefore, both tools will prevent that information uh, leakage, but in slightly different ways. That is the, the intuition of this of how these tools work. Is that correct? Yes, yes, exactly. That's a very great point. So exactly the reason why a supplier wants to leak knowledge to another firm is that it sells it in input. And so by increasing its profits, it can charge a high input price. So the key here is the complementarity between the input and the knowledge the supplier wants to leak to another firm. And so if we restrict this possibility for the supplier, the supplier cannot sell an input, there is no way how it can gain from knowledge sharing. So essentially, yes, even without a confidentiality agreement, exclusive dealing eliminates incentives of the supplier to leak knowledge. So I would say that exclusive dealing works for incentives. So it restricts suppliers' incentives to leak knowledge and confidentiality agreement contractually restricts the supplier's uh, desire to leak knowledge to other firms. So now I want to go to the case of Motorola. Okay. So Motorola is the firm that in your, ex in your example was allowing its supplier to leak its trade secrets in the form of knowledge to Motorola's competitors such as Taiwan manufacturing or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if I want to sell you an idea, I, I really can't because after you have paid me, I have the incentive to you know, tell you some nonsense and pretend that I gave you the idea. If you wait to pay me until I have given you the idea, then you have an incentive to renege on it. Okay, this is like a well-known problem with markets that is the foundation of your paper and that is well-known from Arrow, I think, that you mentioned and so on. Yeah. So thinking about Motorola, Motorola has some innovation and it is allowing that innovation to flow uh, to others, in particular to its competitors who are using that knowledge and potentially eating market share from Motorola. So I want to uh, emphasize that a critical component of the theory is that Motorola can be compensated in their transmission on, of information when it is anyway engaging in supply contracts with other parties. Okay, so the fact that they are already buying and selling something else can allow Motorola to reap some of the benefits by changing the price at which each buys and sells the complementary products from, from their suppliers. In particular, the incumbent Motorola can reap part of these benefits uh, of making its competitors better through a chain of events. The first one is that it is charged a lower price from its supplier. And the second one is that its supplier is charging a higher price to its competitor. So it is this chain that makes it worthwhile for Motorola to allow this information leakage. That's that's the, the main benefit that is at the core of the model. Is that is that correct? Yes, yeah, that's that's exactly correct. I think I should use your words in my future interviews. Uh, that's a great description of what is happening here. That is well I, I wanted I wanted to sell you the right to use my words. But now that I have already <laughs> used them, I, I fear that you are not going to pay me much. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. So that's exactly the idea that is, uh, Motorola has competitors. If they get Motorola's knowledge, they will eat some of its shares. But the idea is that there will be gains for the suppliers. That is, if there are some suppliers who work with Motorola, and they also sell inputs to these other firms. Since these firms are becoming more productive due to access to knowledge from Motorola, they will pay 
higher price to these suppliers. And so Motorola and the suppliers, they can agree on a lower price. So formally, what it means just in my model is the contract that uh, Motorola signs with its supplier depends on their total surplus. That is how much they generate together, not only the profit of the Motorola. So th- this is something that I can imagine Toyota doing. Because Toyota engages in really cooperative relations with its suppliers. And perhaps it doesn't compete super aggressively with other like Japanese car manufacturing and so on. But since you have read so much about, you know, the rationale that people give for the sharing of this tacit information, is this mechanism through which... I extract surplus from my competitors through my suppliers, something that you have found there is some type of like anecdotal evidence for that people have mentioned. Yeah, so this uh, case studies that I described with Motorola and IBM, that's exactly this, is, by the way, I, I should cite this as a paper by Lim on this case study on the diffusion of knowledge about the copper interconnect technology. And yeah, exactly. He described a lot of cases where indeed it's it's hard to evaluate them. It's firms do not say to us how they sign these contracts, but it seems that Motorola had some benefits from its suppliers and it knew that suppliers leaked this knowledge that it was not a surprise for them. So it seems natural that they, that they got some benefits from uh, the relationship of their suppliers with other firms and from the flow of this knowledge. The other question that I have uh, was in terms of the relative uh, plausibility of both types of instruments that IBM was using uh, to prevent uh, this information leakage. I have already given the rationale behind exclusive dealing that that makes you know uh, out of sense. But I'm thinking about how binding the confidentiality agreement is because imagine that I share some tacit knowledge with my suppliers mm-hmm. and I allow my suppliers to sell to the competitors. So because the suppliers are selling to my competitors, they obviously have to communicate with my competitors. In fact, they have to communicate very tightly because in order to create, you know, to adapt their intermediate good to the needs of my competitor. Clearly, the level of information sharing has to be uh, really strong. Now, given that what I have transmitted to them is tacit knowledge and cannot be codified, how can I ever prove in a court of law that the information was leaked? Well, that's a that's a very uh, good question. That basically this is the question is about enforceability of confidentiality agreements. And indeed, in my paper, I used a very stylized model where I assume that confidentiality agreements can be perfectly enforced. But what I want also to think about in the future for other projects is that if they are not perfectly enforced, there might be other ways how firms try to manage knowledge from flows for their suppliers. And in particular, firms might integrate their suppliers. So in my model, I assume that firm boundaries are fixed, but actually when we integrate a supplier, it is easier to monitor what knowledge our integrated supplier transmit to others. And actually there is even legal literature that argues that it is easier to enforce confidentiality agreements with your employees rather than with independent suppliers. And so that might be also a reason uh, for an integration to keep just uh, to, to continue control and manage knowledge flows. But uh, I totally agree that in my model, I abstract from all these issues and assume perfect enforceability. So it, indeed, it's a, it's, it's, a pos- it's a possibility that uh, we cannot enforce this contract. So I, my best answer here is that in this case, firms will rely on some other instruments to try to control knowledge flows. For example, one of them is integration, but maybe there are other contractual arrangements that are available to firms. Okay, so we have this theory now. I think that we have given the broad intuition of how the model works. Now we are going to move into the structure, the empirical part. What are the predictions 
from the theory that you are going to take to the data? Yeah, so there are four predictions. First, I argue that firms in a vertical production relationship, like suppliers and customers, are more likely to cite each other relative to similar firms with no such relationship. Second, I argue that two firms that share a common supplier are also more likely to cite each other relative to two firms that uh, rely on exclusive suppliers. The third prediction is related to the bargaining position of this supplier, the common supplier that is in the model, I predict that two firms are more likely to cite each other. And when I say that two firms are likely to cite each other, it means that one firm gets tacit knowledge of another firm. So two firms are more likely to cite each other if they share a large common supplier rather than small common supplier. And so what I mean by large common supplier, I assume that large suppliers have a strong, stronger bargaining power in input price negotiations with the customers relative to uh, small suppliers and one of the predictions of my theory is exactly related to the bargaining position of the common supplier. And the final prediction is about the level of competition between downstream firms. That is, if competition is very high, firms are more like uh, the owner of secrets and its suppliers, they are more likely to sign exclusive dealing or confidentiality agreement. And so knowledge flows should be more concentrated. And if the competition is low, then we are more likely to see more diverse citations and competitors are more likely to cite each other. So I'm going to repeat them here because it's important that we remember the four predictions. Number one and two, suppliers and customers are more likely to cite each other relative to similar firms that are not suppliers and customers. These are number one and two. Number three, when the supplier is bigger, or has a stronger bargaining position, the two customers of that supplier are more likely to cite each other. Number four, when the two customers are in an industry with a high level of competition, again, there is going to be, in this case, less knowledge sharing, lower likelihood of citing each other. So you essentially test uh, these uh, four predictions with two separate regressions. Regression number one for predictions one to three. Regression number two for prediction four. Let's go to regression number one. What do you do there? Yeah, so the exercises the following. So the model predicts probabilities of a citation based on knowledge sharing. And this degree of knowledge sharing depends on the production network structure between firms. So what I do is that let's suppose that we take two random patents and I'm trying to estimate the probability of a citation between these two random patents as a function of the relationship between the assignees. Whether firms that own these patents, they have a vertical production relationship, whether they share a common supplier, whether this supplier, what is the size of this common supplier, and so these are predictions one to three. So just one technical detail, we cannot take the set of the universe of all patent pairs because it is too large. So I use sampling procedure from the uh, urban literature uh, that is instead of taking the whole universe of patents, I uh, for each cited citing pair, I select a control patent that does not make citations. And so I take this big data and I run regressions where I estimate the probability of a citation as a function of whether firms of, of the production relationship between firms. Yeah, and basically I find that suppliers and customers are more likely to cite each other. Two firms that share a common supplier are also more likely to cite each other. And if this supplier is big, they all, this increases the probability of citation between two downstream firms. So I want to emphasize now that this uh, prediction number three is kind of the, the main support for your theory because predictions number one and two 
you know, they are still consistent with the uh, explanation that I proposed at the beginning of, you know, somehow um, being customer supplier or having the same supplier being a proxy for the level of technological proximity. But that, that explanation doesn't specifically predict that when your supplier happens to be bigger and having stronger bargaining power, you are going to cite each other more. That will be... You know, like the, the, the main support for your uh, theory is really loaded on prediction number three and, and, and four later on. Yes, I agree. Yeah, there are many reasons why two firms sharing a common supplier are more likely to cite each other. For example, they might be similar in technologies. And I'm trying to control for that by including a rich set of fixed effects, controlling for interactions between technologies and time. So I'm trying to, to take two firms that are doing in a very similar, uh, but that are doing patents in a very similar technological classes, and uh, still they are more likely to cite each other if they share a common supplier. But I agree that we never can be sure that maybe the detail of technological classification should be taken even at a more narrow level than I do it. And so I agree the third prediction uh, about the uh, bargaining position of the supply and the final prediction about the competition level, it is not clear why exactly this prediction should hold in an alternative story with technology customization. Okay, good. So now we have prediction number four, uh, which is that two firms that are competing with each other are less likely to cite each other if the level of competition in their industry uh, is higher, specifically if they are more able to steal market uh, from uh, market share from each other. How do you test this? Yeah, so uh, I, let me just start from the beginning, how I thought about testing the model. I think there are two ways to test the model. One is to test the equilibrium structure, that is look, for example, at cross-sectional, whether the predicted level of knowledge flows or the predicted citations are consistent with the network structure between firms. So this is my predictions one to three. And another way to test the theory is to find some shock to the equilibrium system and see whether the changes due to the shock in the model are consistent with the changes in the data. And so what I do here, I find the shock, China shock, which is a shock to the level of competition between firms. And I'm trying to, the model predicts that higher level of competition should lead to more concentrated more concentrated knowledge flows, and as a result, more concentrated citations. And so I look where the technologies that are more exposed to uh, China shock, to import competition from China, indeed, we saw a greater rise in the concentration of citations. And actually, for this evidence, I'm also trying to explain why the concentration has increased over time, at least provide some partial explanation for this rise. And indeed, what I find is that Technologies that are more exposed to import competition from China, we see a greater rise in the concentration of citations. And the specific uh, empirical strategies that I used was famous author at all China shock paper, where they instrumented uh, the import competition from China for the US by Chinese experts to other high income countries. So one question that I have here. Uh, is in terms of understanding uh, the match between what competition means in the theoretical model and what the Chinese shock to competition means in this like famous instrument from author and co-authors that, that you have mentioned. So just going back to, to the model, uh, 
Motorola wouldn't want, in principle, its trade secrets to reach its competitors, because obviously the competitors will be eating market share uh, out of Motorola. So if its competitors were able to use this trade secret for something else that does not affect Motorola, then it will be great, because then Motorola can, uh, you know, like extract some of the surplus through this like double, you know, mechanism that we were mentioning earlier. So it is the degree to which Motorola's competitors are actually competing with Motorola and eating that market share that is the main rationale here behind prediction four, right? The more the computers yes. eat out of Motorola, the, the less than Motorola wants to wants to share. So in this sense, this uh, competition, level of competition is bilateral in some sense. So something about the China shock is that it made everybody in the US worse off, hmm? in that it shrank the, the, the size of the market, but it is not so clear to me that it also like make the degree of sustainability between the products of the incumbent Motorola and the entrance uh, that much higher. You know, it just, in some sense, shrunk the pie for everybody. But because in your application, you are looking at firms that are listed in the US in your empirical strategy. You know, yes, the Chinese firms were now competing, but it's not clear that two U.S. firms were now competing more fiercely with each other uh, just because their markets ha had shrunk. I see. I see. Uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a good point. So the way I interpret China shock, it's a, it's like a foreign competition. That is, imagine that Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company is another country. Uh, Motorola is is in the United States, and so I interpret China shock as like decline in the trade costs between these two companies. So they start. To to compete more intensely with each other, but this does not give me predictions about the level of competition in the United States. So I, I should say here that uh, indeed China shock does not explain uh, the decrease, the increase in the concentration of citations among U.S. companies. It's it might explain why foreign firms are less likely to cite uh, American companies. But I think that there is general, there, there is literature that argues that the level of competition in the United States uh, has increased since 2000. Uh, there are debates about this, uh, of course. Uh, some people argue that markups are going up and so indeed the competition becomes lower. But some people argue that due to the nature of technological change, uh, we now have this winner-take-it-all economy. And so the level of competition has increased. So my China shock does not capture this thing, but I think it points out that the degree of competition might be responsible for the concentration of knowledge flows and for the concentration of citations. And so, uh, yeah, a great test would explore uh, the rising degree of competition if it, if it exists within the United States as well to explain this fact. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that the China shock does not lead to fiercer competition between American firms, you know? It is very possible that it, it did, you know? It's not yeah. uh, just that we need that additional step, you know, in the, in the like a, you know, like a chain of reasoning in order to bring the model and the data uh, closer together. Yeah. So again, here, prediction four, which is validated by the data, but not really a prediction that will have come with my alternative uh, explanation of technological similarity and so on, because the level of competition, you know, would not necessarily uh, correlate with that. Yeah. So um, the, the last thing that I wanted to mention is what does this tell us about the use of citations to capture uh, knowledge flows? Mm -hmm. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to be a bit negative in the paper about, or more negative in the paper, about what citation flows tell us uh, relative to prior to writing your paper, you know? So 
we kind of knew that TitanFlow were only a proxy, but you're telling us that they are a worse proxy than we thought. Is that, is that the, you know, am I correct in, in interpreting your paper in this way? Well, uh, I'm trying to uh, see everything in a positive light. So I think that patent citations do not capture knowledge spillovers. And the literature, uh, to some extent, tried to argue that, for example, some legal scholars argued that citations mean nothing. And I think this is a very negative view of patent citations. I think patent citations reflect something, but maybe this is not knowledge spillovers in the way we think about them in uh, many of our models. And so my view is that because patent citations might reflect, instead of knowledge spillovers, they might reflect cooperation and intentional knowledge sharing between firms, we might want to pay more attention to how firms organize knowledge sharing with each other, what contractual uh, arrangements they use, whether they, they might uh, integrate each other or not. And so we can use patent citations to discipline uh, to discipline a lot of our theories about contractual arrangements between firms, about uh, a lot of theories from organizational economics, rather than a lot of theories from uh, economic growth literature, which is uh, which relies a lot on the idea of spillovers and knowledge externalities. So I think this is this is one direction of my research, that as I found this fact, I argue that patent citations reflect cooperation. And so I study in a simple way cooperation between firms and try to explain some patterns of knowledge sharing. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree that another alternative way uh, from here would be, for example, try to find alternative measures of knowledge externalities. That is, suppose, yeah, patent citations do not reflect externalities, but then what we can use to measure knowledge externalities. I think that would be a great research for uh, for the future. So let me see whether I understood it. Because in your model, the presence of tacit knowledge sharing goes hand in hand with the presence of a citation of public knowledge or, co or codified knowledge. Uh, therefore, you also have like this one-to-one -one relation and you yourself in your regression are using still citations to capture that um, um, knowledge change of this tacit knowledge that is not. So, so your argument will be citations can still be used as a proxy for the diffusion of knowledge. They are not worse than they were before, you know? In fact, I am using them uh, in my regressions. But the micro foundations of how um, the act of knowledge sharing or knowledge exchange or knowledge diffusion translates into the citation is a little bit different than what we were thinking before. Therefore, maybe the organizational economics literature has more to say about this process than the economic growth literature. Is that the, the, the way to, to interpret what you said? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I also talk about uh, what are policy implications of this uh, of this evidence. That is usually uh, the literature on economic growth is focused on creative destruction, competition between firms in the environment with knowledge externalities. And because of these externalities, one of the main policy recommendations is that we need to subsidize corporate R&D. But uh, it's very hard to evaluate the degree of these externalities. I know, I know people try to do it uh, and try to do it with patent citations. I just think that patent citations might not be uh, well suited to capture these things. But if patent citations reflect cooperation between firms, then it also tells us something about the policies that we can try to quantify, try to relate to economic growth. And in particular, in the last part of my paper, I discussed how the regulation of vertical contracts can promote knowledge diffusion in the economy and uh, eventually lead to economic growth 
And yeah, I, I do it only on the theoretical level, but I think in the future we might use to uh, we might use patent citations trying to answer these types of questions. That is how the regulation of contracts between firms would affect knowledge flows where knowledge flows are measured by citations. Wonderful. Thank you, Evgeny, for coming to the program. Uh, thank you very much, Jordi. That was a, a great discussion. Thank you. My guest today has been Evgeny Fadif. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.